Today we are continuing in our uh, sermon series on the letters of Paul uh, and really the lifetime of Paul because we're merging in it with Acts and uh, Luke's attesting of his travels with Paul as well as uh, varying letters. Today we're in our second week in the letter to the Corinthians. And I, I love Paul's letters to individual churches because 1 Corinthians is not a generic letter that is meant to be passed around. Uh, There are some letters that are written in the ancient world that was to all the churches here, but this one is a little too personal. Uh, In fact, he actually chastises them pretty deeply here uh, in a minute, as you're going to hear. And it's really, honestly, 2,000 years later, it's just very refreshing as a pastor to understand some of the similar difficulties Paul had every pastor today now faces. And so today what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about the communion table, the purpose of it. We're going to talk about, uh, because today actually is World Communion Sunday, which means every church across the world is supposed to be uh, doing communion on this particular uh, weekend. I find that a very powerful, important thing for us to do together. In fact, as I was coming into Saturday night last night, one of our staff, Philip, asked me, how you doing? And I said, honestly, I need to eat at the table of the Lord with my fellow brothers and sisters of my family. And uh, so we're going to talk about that table, about that family, and the expectations that are written in 1 Corinthians on that. Then we're going to talk about 1 Corinthians 13. Have you ever seen Wedding Crashers? It's in it. Uh, This is the passage uh, that is typically the marriage passage, but frankly, that's a misreading of 1 Corinthians 13. And then we're going to jump into 1 Corinthians 15, how the death and the resurrection tie with that piece. So let us start with uh, the difficulties in the church surrounding the communion table. And I think this is one of the most powerful pieces. Uh, And and particularly as a pastor, Paul's about to chastise them. This is not a kind section of the letter. There's a reason it took 11 chapters to get here. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. See, I told you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Unfortunately, every pastor has been to more meetings, has been to meetings that did more harm than good. And our goal and our purpose is to only do meetings that would cause good and not harm for a congregation. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No, duh, he knows people. I mean, really, could you have, could you actually have a marriage or a small group or a church where everyone agrees with everyone? That's just not the way of humans. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk. See, no grape juice. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You see, in the first century, communion evolved from really a full meal into just the two elements. On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, there was a whole meal they had. Uh, There was the Passover feast. 
They had an entire meal, but he took two special elements and made them sacred, the bread and the cup. And he blessed them and said, actually, out of all these elements, these are the two that I'm going to make sacred and holy. And so over time, they would actually gather together and people would bring their own food, except some people would be hungry and some people would be wasted. Not ideal in a church setting. The point of, that, of, the, of Paul's story in this message is that it wasn't actually shared among every single member. You see, the reason why I particularly love the, the, the story of communion, this table that we are going to have together is because it is actually a reflection of Jesus. It is actually Jesus. I'm not gonna get into the 600 year old differences between Catholics and Protestants on technical definitions surrounding communion. That's for the root uh, in Lauren's class later or Scott's class, or if you wanna talk to a pastor, we can definitely give some history. But there's, you know, the church has split a lot in the last 2000 years. But what unites him is actually this belief that there is power in the blood and in the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That there is power in that peace and that everyone actually ought to be welcomed. There is no asterisk next to the question of who did God die for? There's no addendums, rebuttals, etc. You, God died for. The person you met on the street, God died for. The person that you hate the most in your life, God loves them more than you do. Isn't that just an amazing fact? That actually we come together on this day and we are wondering how can we be united in such a thing and I have no idea unless the answer is Jesus. No idea unless the table's the answer. Unless actually God has set up for us a mechanism to be better than we otherwise would already be. In fact, you go from this section on communion and how you do it to a section on the body parts. This is what one of the passages I preached on last week. Where, you know, the ear cannot say to the eye, I do not need you. Or the eye does not say to the feet, I do not need you. Because, you know, a body has to smell, see, walk, etc. How do you do that? How do you actually have an entire diverse body of Christ that is united? The communion table is the answer. And then he sits there and says, how do we be separated together? Or how do we be united together? So this is the bit of 1 Corinthians 12 at the end of that section. So now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles, Second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, of helping, of guidance, and of different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now eagerly desire the greater gifts. You see, this whole section is actually about the church body, the particular congregation of 1 Corinthians, of the Corinthians. This entire section is actually about different people with different giftings. I consider that the, 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 the diversity of thought, of backgrounds, of frameworks, of histories, of denominations that are members at St. Andrew that grew up in different places, I consider that a massive asset in the life of this church. It's a gift. 
And then the other reason I read that passage is it's right before the Wedding Crashers passage. I wish it wasn't the Wedding Crashers passage, but that's just how it is, right? You go to a wedding and the, the, you know, you're betting which passage is it. 1 Corinthians 13 is the love passage. It's what we imagine as a marriage passage. That is not what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about, y'all. In fact, marriage ain't mentioned anywhere right there. It is right after the question of how do we sit in pews with one another? That's the question. You see, 1 Corinthians 13, this section about love is not what the rest of the world imagines the conversation is. Because the rest of the world, it, what we've done is, is, well, we've changed our expectations. We've lowered our expectations here in the church amongst people sitting literally in pews with one another. I, I keep thinking about this in terms of like, Chris Rock has a really nice, funny uh, um, stand-up routine where he talks about how dads can't babysit their kids. Like no mother ever says, I babysat my kids. Like no mother has ever said that. And no one has ever said, hey, look, you're going to babysit your kids. No one ever says that. I have been out in public. They're like, oh good, you're babysitting for your wife. I'm like, no. I'm being a father. I love my kids, right? Like that's the kind of basic framework of that, of that setup. And his entire spiel is people, you don't get credit for doing what you're supposed to do. Like loving your kids and loving your spouse, it shouldn't be that much rocket science. Like it's actually harder than it ought to be in our world today. But like 1 Corinthians 13, it bears all things. Yes, bear your spouse. Of course you have. You took that vow. You don't get credit for doing what you're supposed to do. You want to know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about? Us gathered together around a table, coming with different gifts and different backgrounds and different places together. First Corinthians 13, I want you to hear it differently, not in the way that everyone else imagines this passage, but I want you to think about someone else in this room. I want you to think about someone that you're not related to, that you're sitting near or by or whatever. And then I want you to hear 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongue of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hope, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. For where there is knowledge, it will pass away. This is a phrase I think is really important for today. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Prophesy is basically preaching. It's one of the reasons we have women clergy. Because in Acts 2, when it says your women shall prophesy, that's basically what it is. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. That's a humble comment coming from one who met Jesus, from Paul saying, listen, we know in part, 
We prophesy in part. The humility of the church is to come to this place and say, I could be wrong, y'all. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You see, this passage is about us as a congregation gathered together, us trying to be like Jesus, who welcomes all and cares for all, who is actually the Alpha and the Omega, the one who demonstrated love, but in a way that no one else actually predicted. One of Scott Engel, our teaching pastor's favorite things is to talk about how people get love wrong because they think it's about fuzzy Hallmark stuff. For the record, in December, Jimmy's preaching about Hallmark Christmas. Uh, you ought to come to that. It's going to be hilarious. He's watched way more Hallmark than you ever imagine. <laughs> it's true. He started going, I was like, I ain't preaching that. That's all you, man. So I'm really excited about that. But here's the deal. Everyone imagines in the outside world that 1 Corinthians 13 is about that. You know what it's about? It's about Jesus it's actually about the God who loved his children enough that he made us, and while we were yet sinners, he proved his love for us. Love is a verb. It is an action. It is us coming to one another and saying what is required in this world and what love does is not what the world expects. Because what the world tries to do all the time is dig. You're going to choose this or that. You're going to go this way or that way. What God does is he goes, oh, just you wait. I'm going to actually come in a baby in Bethlehem. And I was like, say what? You end up having the boldness of God. The love of God portrayed when Jesus says, it is time for me to take my rightful place. And what does he do? He enters, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey. Like the thing that I think about Christians and I think about particularly this congregation is that we ought to be Jesus on a donkey bold. We ought to be bold like Jesus on a donkey where people go, wait a minute, is that what the Messiah is like? The kind of love where Jesus is on a cross for his fellow man who says on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That we are gathered together a people, a congregation that is called to be radical and unpredictable in the way in which we actually demonstrate love. It's like a parable of a shepherd where Jesus says, Jesus Jesus says, I'm going to be the shepherd that leaves the 99 to go after the one. I thought a lot about what it means to be a shepherd this week. Mostly, um, mostly because I, I believe that as as God calls us to love in this world, the shepherd's as good of a metaphor as I've ever had, and frankly, that was the training that I received here and what you taught me. Led by the greatest shepherd I ever knew, which is Robert Hasley. I miss him today more than most days.
And I'll tell you, the greatest shift that I've made in my life over this 12-year period is the reframing of my mind from, really, this is what Robert, Robert talked so often about being the good shepherd, what he wanted to name this church. And what happened was I became way more like Robert than he became more like me <laughs> in these last 12 years. Where my primary calling I have come to believe is not to any wider system but to the sheep to whom I have been sent. Because that's the love that a shepherd has for its sheep. It's a kind of love that I think is 1 Corinthians 13 love. Where we hope all things, bear all things, persevere. Because the story of 1 Corinthians 13 is of the one who made the world and was the shepherd to all. All. The reason why I have such a love of this Bible is because it shares the story of the one who made us, who revealed us the story of what does it take to actually love and the answer is found in the meal that we are about to partake. Because this meal is... This meal is the only thing that I believe can unify our fractured world and us together. Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 14 with some things. And then he wraps up the entire section on the church with a reminder of what we believe. A reminder of the gospel, the good news. 1 Corinthians 15 reads this. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you've received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as one abnormally born and then he ends that 1 Corinthians 15 passage with, with a passage that I have read in too many funerals. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the sin is power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that the work 
that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. This is the word of God telling us that the, that the kingdom of heaven is what we are supposed to be striving towards and that one day it shall come to fruition. One day it shall be complete. One day we shall know in full and prophesy in full. That day is not yet here. Jesus hadn't come back yet. And until then, we are going to gather together at this table welcoming everyone because you've never met a soul for whom God did not die. You've never met a soul for whom God would not have done everything he could, got like a good shepherd, gone after the sheep. This is the story that we get to preach, that we get to live. One of my favorite pieces of the table is the early church theologians uh, talked a lot about this. Honestly, if you don't have 2,000 years of growing up in kind of a Christian world, this table would confuse you. In fact, in the first century, Christians were called cannibals uh, because they walked out of their group gatherings and went, man, Jesus' blood was good. And people were like, that's weird. What do you mean you ate his body and blood? Like truly, there were some rumors out there about that among early Christians. But the early Christian theologians, many of them, they, they talked a lot about what God was doing in this table. And what they did was they told the story of the body that was bread, still is bread, but also the body. The power of the body of Christ is in the bread and the power of the body of Christ is in the cup. And they actually, there were some early theologians who talked a lot about why you must do this table. And one of the things that I particularly like to think of when I take communion is that if it's true that this, that this table is the body of Christ, and the blood of Christ, then we are called to actually take in Jesus, which means that the molecules of the body and the blood of Christ become our molecules. That actually what ought to happen when we come to the table is that we are transformed. And there are two pieces of this. Sorry, the band kind of thought I was done preaching. So, uh, but there are two pieces of this. One is Jesus, when he is here, he gave himself for us so that this is now the body and blood of Christ or will be when I consecrate the elements. And the second piece of this, everyone has to come to this table from every background, from every place, from every piece of identity or whatever is out there in the world. This is the table where we drop that to become like Jesus, where we lead with Christ. And on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples together, knowing he was about to die for each of them. And he took the bread and he broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this as often as you can in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup, poured it out for his disciples and said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of this as often as you can in remembrance of me. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, redeemed, redeemed by your blood. God, may we be one with each other and on this World Communion Sunday and particularly on this day, would you remind us that you love all? Every denomination, every section, all 80-ish denominations of Methodism, God, I pray that you would bless every single one of them. God, I pray that your spirit would be in this moment and that you would convict us of those times when we have thought we prophesied or known in full 
And instead, God, let us humbly receive what you've given. Amen. Will the ushers come forward and those who are helping serve at this time? Here at St. Andrew, I want to do a reminder, which has been basically my whole sermon, but this table is not mine. It's not a Methodist table. It's Jesus's. And Jesus gave himself for all. We take this by a process of intinction where you will receive a piece of the body. Dip it into the cup and take both elements together. And when you receive the these elements, you're going to hear the words, this is the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ broken for you. But pray about the people that are in the pews with you, before you and behind you, to your right and your left. And remember that this is so that we might do this together. Amen.